Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. I am here this time around in the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast with Dr. Ben Lynch. Many of you might know Dr. Lynch and his work in methylation and nutrigenomics. It's pretty exciting because he's coming out with a new book called The Dirty Genes. And he's also coming out with a summit in January 2018 all about genomics and all the diet and lifestyle things that we can do for our genes to optimize them. So in this conversation I'm having with him, much like I have with other guests, it goes pretty organic. We talk about everything from genomics to uh, we, we start getting into vision. And so if we think of color and seeing something, visualizing, so what are the genomics of vision and what are some of the nutrients that we might have to think about? We talked about that and we closed the conversation talking about light, blue light, and talking about different practical things that we could do in order to help our vision. So enjoy the podcast. It's a little bit longer than my my other podcast, but I think you'll like it. It's pretty jam-packed with lots of good information. So here you go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. And I'm here today with Dr. Ben Lynch, who is really you know, the word that comes to mind when I think of Ben is he's a marvel in many ways. He's um, really a pioneer in so many different areas. He's coming out with a new book. And so we're going to tour through many different topics and stay on track with this whole theme of color. So welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks, Deanna. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So I'm really curious, although I think I've asked you this question on a different um interview and in a different setting, but let me just refresh my memory. I'm going to ask you what your favorite color is. That is a, it's a tough question for me and it depends, but I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to leave it that generic. I mean, if I were to pick a color, I would say green and I would say a, a typical, a, a forest green, you know, a, a natural tree leaf, a dark tree leaf green, I think is, is stunning for me. It's, it's very nourishing for me. It's very grounding. Um, it helps me a lot. Uh, yeah. So I'd say gr- dark green. Yeah. And that definitely tracks with what I remember you saying last time. And you were even talking about your days in grad school of having a room that was painted evergreen and how you really needed that. It helped you to focus. And I usually associate green with people that are in the healing profession in some way, the healing arts, it's a very heart-filled color, I believe, you know, especially based on the systems that I use. So it makes sense for you. It makes sense. I get a little bit of blue with you as well. Blue is a very intellectual color, and I feel like you've got a lot of that going on too. So, but who knows? (laughs) 
Green and blue are my company colors. So. There you go. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So you've done a lot of things in your life, and um, you're you're becoming more and more well known for certain things, especially genomics, genes, nutrigenomics. So I definitely want to get into that before we traverse through a lot of those different topics. I first want to know just a little bit more about you, especially for our listeners too. What got you into studying naturopathic medicine? Did you kind of always feel like you were a curious type of person where you wanted to figure things out about the body? Did you have certain things happen in your family? Did certain things happen to you? You know, kind of what was, uh, tell us a little bit about you and your journey. That's a great question. And, you know, I was, I was reflecting back quickly on a few things and I'm a very curious person. I do enjoy understanding how things work. I love using my hands and, and building and, and fixing things. Um, and I, I love design and uh, understanding how things work, but I'm, I'm not a mechanic. So I'm, I'm not a, I don't get, I'm not a car repair guy. I'm not a lawnmower engine repair guy. I, I don't like working on dead things. I like working with things that have have a soul to them that they're they're living and they're moving and they're they're doing something so whether it's animals or or plants or humans or it doesn't you know anything that's that's alive and i it sounds kind of weird but i mean i i think stones have a pulse too because i Mm -hmm. I love stonework and water um fire uh you know but you know I, i really enjoyed working with these elements so you know for me you know i i struggled with my health and I grew up in a, in a home that was professionally oriented. So Ben, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, how did you get into the healing arts? How did you decide to go on to naturopathic medicine? You know, was there something in your family? Was there something that you experienced? You seem like a very, uh, you know, a type of person that's very into nature. So it seems like it's already congruent very much with who you are. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I grew up in a, a gorgeous area in, in central Oregon, uh, on a hundred acre horse ranch. And, you know, I got, I got to go home and saddle up my horse and get my 12 dogs literally and, uh, head up into the hills and go trail riding for, for hours and hours and see deer and vultures and golden eagles and coyotes and badgers and all that. So it was, it was an amazing experience and being able to see that and experience it uh, to that extent was, was very fortunate. And then the evenings were amazing with the geese flying overhead and the, the stars and the moon. And so, yeah, I was, I was very, very much into nature and still am. Um, you know, but what's, what's interesting is, is my stepmom was, was, was very, uh, I mean, she was into nature too, cause she, you know, we were obviously, they bought their home there and I was fortunate to live there, but you know, she was very into Western medicine and, and, uh, she's an MD obstetrician gynecologist. And when I got sick, I was given the standard pharmaceuticals. And when she got sick, she went that route. And, and I never felt that great. And, uh, I, I was tall and skinny and scrawny. And, and, uh, even though I was lifting hay and, you know, working hard on the ranch and eating well, I, I was always just not right. And I, I didn't know that there was a, a better me. I had no idea. And then when I was rowing at the University of Washington, um, you know, and training, you know, with my teammates who were former world champions and Olympians and, and, uh, which was a great experience and being out on the water and experiencing nature that way. Um, you know, I, 
I, I was working really hard trying to be a better athlete, but still my body was not letting me. And, uh, I didn't know anything about nutrition. I was taking no vitamins. I didn't know what to eat. I had no clue. And, uh, it wasn't until I was in India. Uh, I traveled into my junior year overseas for a year in South Pacific and Southeast Asia. And when I was in India, I got very ill and I was introduced to Ayurvedic medicine by a, a local East Indian who I'd met thankfully. And seriously, within about 20 minutes, I was about 80% better from these weird concoctions of herbs and teas and so on. And, uh, it was after that I, I learned it was Ayurvedic medicine and that really made a huge impact on me. And so I, I wanted to know more about what that was. And I studied pre-med at college, um, which was great, but it didn't fascinate me, which is why I took a year off. And, uh, so my interest discovered me by being sick and, uh, I just kept looking and found naturopathic medicine in my backyard via Bastyr and just kept branching off from there. That's great. I'm I'm really imagining you through your journey and it's so great that you knew relatively early on what your path was going to unfold as, you know, going into naturopathic medical school and um you know, it seems like you had that revelation pretty early as a as a junior and having these changes in your body. So fascinating. I didn't know that about you. So, you know, years down the line now, um, you know, you're into things like nutrigenomics. So I'm kind of curious how that happened because not all naturopathic physicians are exploring nutrigenomics like you are. And so what led you there? Well, I love naturopathic medicine because, you know, and functional medicine too, because we we work on the holistic approach. We, we want to work with our patient as an individual rather than a disease. We want to support the patient as much as we can. And when I was studying environmental medicine and, and practicing environmental medicine, uh, I was realizing that even though someone would be high in arsenic or exposed to diesel uh, smoke or you know, exposed to mercury, uh, various reasons or responding unfavorably to uh, a vaccine. Why, why were they doing that? And uh, I also wanted to know why certain people were more susceptible to certain conditions than others. And I, I started seeing too that someone could be depressed or have a sinus infection, yet the causes were so different. And uh, so I would start treating their causes and I give them certain vitamins knowing that, you know, I would be supporting them in certain lifestyle changes and some would get better and some would get, would get worse or no change. I was thinking, well, it helped this other person. So why am I making this person sick or, or no change? And so I, I wanted to know why the, the 20% of patients or 30% of patients who weren't getting better, why they weren't getting better. And the first thing that came to my mind was their genes must be different. And, uh, so I, I started asking that question and people just looked at me and kind of, they didn't roll their eyes, but they're just, they just kind of ignored me literally. And, uh, the first gene I ever learned about was empty Jafar when, uh, an individual asked me about bipolar disease and I was just rattling off the usual naturopathic stuff, fish oil and whole foods and, you know, avoiding that. And, but it said, Bipolar was associated with this MTHFR, and I didn't know what MTHFR was, so I put it, typed it back into PubMed, and it resulted in all these associations of 
these vast common yet very serious conditions like cardiovascular disease and congenital birth defects and depression and cancers. And it's like, I got to know more. So I did. And then I realized that empty Jafar and these other genes were, you know, very important that I realized I could really, if I understood the enzymatic control and the genetic control of an individual, you can't get any deeper than that. But I, I wanted to know what controlled those genes. Was it lifestyle, diet, environment? And so I, I tied that into it too. So now it's a real full picture and uh, it's powerful when it's done right. You know, the, the last part of what you just said is so key when it's done right. And, you know, being that this field is so relatively new with the Human Genome Project finalizing in 2003 and people getting excited, I mean, gosh, we are just you know, just shy of 15 years away from that. And all these different companies and different uh, websites and different ways to analyze our genome. I mean, now it's even available. I mean, we think of 23andMe, people getting their genes sequenced. I mean, I was one of the the people that did it when it first came out. And then it was kind of like, well, what do we do with all this stuff? What do we do with the translation? And how do we connect this into... A, a person's bigger life because obviously we know in functional medicine your genes aren't your destiny but I do think that they're really important so what I see in the field is is people are either placing a lot of emphasis on it or they're not placing any at all and it sounds like where you've netted out is where I would say somewhere in the middle kind of that sweet spot of looking how everything interfaces because you know, it's it's really hard to say. I was talking with Jeff Bland the other day, and he was talking about, well, we have to look at the patterns. We have to look at what's regulating what. And it's true. You know, this whole idea of um, pattern recognition, looking at genes as part of that and how it's inter- interfacing with things that are functional. So just kind of a long thing to say that I, I think that what you're doing is intriguing because your approach seems to be very well-rounded in the sense of, looking at genes vis-a-vis lifestyle and food and supplements and all these other things. So I don't know, did you want to kind of comment just on the the general climate out there on this whole personalized nutrigenomic sphere and how it's really changing? Well, it's, it's so new, you know, it, it's anytime something is so new, there's going to be, you know, misinformation and there's going to be people trying to clamoring to figure it out, which is great. Um, you know, the, I think there's also anytime something is new, they, they see potential for business and financial prosperity. And so you, you have to look at it from that viewpoint, which I, I, I hate to do. Um, but so the people who are really utilizing genetics properly are those who are still utilizing the basics and the fundamentals and not forgetting those such as functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, and, and integrative if, of any type. And uh, I think that if, if people are utilizing genetics in their practice or for themselves, that's phenomenal. You know, I commend you for that because you're, you're digging deep and you're trying to figure out uh, how to make yourself better and make your patient better. The problem is you can't forget everything else that you've learned. You can't forget what your grandma told you to go to sleep on time and get out and get some fresh air and exercise and eat the right food. And you can't forget what you learned in med school, which was history first. And, you know, you, you, you got to treat the patient, not the, the piece of paper or the lab test. And 
genetics is just another piece of paper. It's, it's something that's static in the individual, but despite them being static on a piece of paper, they're very uh, flexible and they listen for cues, either internal and external. And what drives those genes to function is the individual themselves. And uh, that's what I've learned and uh, through the hard way. So I'm trying to make people learn it uh, the easier way to, to save them frustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. I know one of the things, uh, you know, we can start talking about all these different gene variants that are out there and the ones that are really popular, like the methylating uh, genes and the different variants for methylation. But the, one of the things that we wanted to talk about a little bit, because it's really an area of interest for so many people, I think, is the the field of vision, and so, you know, being that this is called the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, you and I were kind of waxing on this idea of talking about seeing color, looking at how maybe some of these genetics influence our vision. And I'd love to have a conversation with you about that because I it's really interesting. So I'm in my late 40s and my vision has changed. I've always worn glasses all my life. I'm not colorblind, but <laughs> and that's a good thing because I would really miss um, seeing all the bright colors. Although, you know, colors I think in some ways surpass just the vision. Um, but anyway, I, I do know that people's eyesight is is really a concern, especially because so much of our livelihood, so much of the work we do, so much of how we learn is visual. So I'd love for you to share with us some of your insights around vision as it meets this world of genetics and perhaps even a bit about environment. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I I was thinking about this uh, earlier because, you know, I really enjoyed our interview that we had around color and and its impact on on who we are as individuals and uh, our perception of the world and how it can impact us. And and uh, then I started thinking, wow, well, what if, what if we are not able to see color very well or interpret it well or our vision starts getting worse and we don't have that privilege of being able to experience the impact of color on us? And uh, so it started making me looking at colorblindness. And yeah, there are genes associated with colorblindness and they're pretty rare, the severe ones. And then it was talking about the environmental impact of, of colorblindness is actually quite common. Uh, more common than genetic component component of it, and then that maybe is like, oh wow, I didn't know about that either. And you know, I'm no specialist about the eye by any means, um, far from. But what I do know is that the the eye is affected by various key compounds in our body, um, and as we age, we start losing them, and we also might have genetic uh, variants to, which affect their uh, production and. A couple of these are, are vitamin A and glutathione. And then also there's another one for blood flow. So if we have reduced blood flow to our eye, then we're not able to deliver nutrients to the eye and we're not able to remove the gunk that, uh, you know, the used up uh, compounds that the eye cells are producing to get them out so they're more reacting. And as you said, you know, you're in the, your upper 40s, I'm in my mid 40s, and um, you know, we want to keep our eye health as healthy as possible. And I don't want people thinking that as we age, our eyes just naturally get worse. That's just part of life. And I mean, yeah, it is. But why don't we try to minimize that 
uh, decline as much as possible. And I believe we can if we understand our genetics and our environment on them. And so, for example, let's talk about vitamin A, yeah? Please, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a very, very common uh, genetic variant in this gene that uh, processes beta-carotene. And so beta-carotene, by this gene, will transform into active form of vitamin A, the fat-soluble vitamin A. And, and a lot of vitamin companies uh, are scared to put real vitamin A in their products because of vitamin A toxicity. Um, and so that you don't really find it in prenatals anymore. You don't really find it in multivitamins anymore. You just see beta carotene because everybody knows that beta carotene can become vitamin A. So we'll just let the body do it. The problem is I, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here that, you know, anywhere up to 40 to 70% of people, it's super common, uh, have a, a genetic variation in their ability to convert beta carotene into active vitamin A. And Ben, what I know about that too is that um, I, I believe that people with subclinical hypothyroidism also have an issue with that conversion. So even people that don't even maybe have the gene but have something clinical going on with them can have an impaired process. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, that does ring a bell, but I um, I need to look at that and I will. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for that. Just wanted to uh, toss that into the mix too. But yeah, what you're saying about, um, the genetic component of that conversion makes really good sense. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, in hypothyroidism, geez, that's, that's super prevalent. And, uh, so, you know, let's say that you have this genetic variant and you're, you're not consuming vitamin A, you're just relying on beta carotene. You're eating your vegetables and you're, you're taking your vitamins, which is beta carotene in them your night vision can be getting worse. And so if you're noticing that your night vision is declining and you're having more difficulty when a car goes by and they shine their lights at you and you, you can't adjust, you know, that's something that you should be thinking about, you know, God, maybe I should add some vitamin A in my diet, either through cod liver oil or uh, meats and fats um, and, uh, or just supplementing with real vitamin A uh, can be useful. And then, you know, so that, that is one component. And I swear I'm part cat, Deanna. I mean, my, my night vision is ridiculously good um, <laughs> to, to the detriment of my family because, They you can't know, get away with anything with you, I bet. N- no, they, well, <laughs> yeah, my kids aren't, uh, well, not that I know of yet, but they're not really sneaking out. Uh, maybe they are. Um, but, uh, you know, I got three boys and that's bound to happen. Um but, uh, no, I mean, I, I'll walk down to the, the fire pit in the evening and my wife will walk with her flashlight on and my kids will have their headlamps on and I'll be screaming, I'm point it down. And it's like, you know how your dad freaks out with light and, uh, yeah, cause it, it affects me and I can literally see grass blades. I mean, it's ridiculous how good mm-hmm. my night vision is. Um, I don't know why. And I have this genetic issue. I have this mm-hmm. BCO one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do eat meat and I do eat, uh, you know, foods that contain vitamin A. Um, so maybe that's why, but my wife does have this genetic variant and she struggles with hypothyroidism and her night vision is awful, uh, awful. Interesting. Wow. Well, I just want to toss in one more thing because it relates to color. You mentioned beta carotene 
And when I think of beta carotene as a carotenoid, I think of the family of carotenoids. And one of the major ones we know about for the eye is actually yellow in its lutein, which mm-hmm. concentrates in the macula in the back of the eye. And that's our central point of vision. That's where a lot of our the, the light coming into the eye gets reflected uh, onto the macula for this image to be created, right? So um, when I'm thinking of beta carotene, I'm thinking of all the colors in the plant kingdom. And um, I know that there was a study some years ago on zeaxanthin, and zeaxanthin is kind of the partner to lutein. Typically, we find it in uh, like red bell pepper, really good for helping with night glare is my understanding as well. So thank you for mentioning beta carotene. I love it. You know, the carotenoids are so protective. You know, they're these long, squiggly, fat-soluble, plant-based compounds that embed into the eye. So interesting what you said about your wife and yourself. So maybe uh, I'm curious if you've ever had your plasma retinol levels measured or even carotenoids just to see if there is some correlation there for both of you. No, that's a great point. Uh, I have not. Um, I didn't even know you could check those things. Uh, plasma, uh, would you say retinoids? Uh, retinol, so the Retinols, active yeah. form of vitamin right. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, so plasma retinols, yeah, that's that's a good one to know about. Um, I'm sure it's probably pretty cheap too, yeah? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, you know, like the standard Genovas and doctor's data, a lot of labs in our space. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Nutravel. Nutravel is a test where they look at a lot of these different carotenoids and even vitamin A. So, okay. and, and if you're looking at vitamin A, my thought is you might as well just look at all the fat-soluble vitamins because they're all very interrelated, right? A, D, yeah. E, and K. Right. So, yeah. So, maybe... Um, what about glutathione? So glutathione is one that is uh, a very interesting one because it ties into detoxification. So what's your thought on that one for the eye? Yeah, well, this one's twofold. Um, so you've got uh, glutathione for detox, but you also need glutathione for your mitochondria. And your eye have, has the most dense mitochondria uh, in the body than any other area in in than any other area. So, you know, your brain is, you know, quite a bit, I believe. Yeah, your brain has got a ton and your your muscles have a ton. Um, you know, any energy uh, producing area in your body and usage uh, will, will have mitochondria in them, but your eyes have the most densely packed. And mitochondria burn oxygen. And when anytime you're burning oxygen, you're creating reactive oxygen species. You're kicking off a lot of uh, damage uh, for that, you know, because oxygen is it, it will catch fire and burn and explode, and that's our primary fuel as humans. Um, and so we have to have glutathione there to help neutralize that stuff. And one of them, uh, one of the reactive oxygen species is called hydrogen peroxide. That's uh, H2O2, and glutathione's job is to to gobble that up and turn it into uh, uh, to water, basically. And so if if we have uh, worsening of vision, then we might be having higher levels of hydrogen peroxide in our eyes and lower levels of glutathione. And diabetics, for example, have their vision is gets greatly affected because the sugar is so damaging. And uh, their glutathione levels are low because the, the excess NADH and the sugar pathways are consuming the, the glutathione in a big way. Um, so, you know, diabetics or anyone with worsening of vision 
should strongly consider glutathione um, to, to replenish, uh, preferably liposomal glutathione. Uh, it's going to be a lot less expensive than IV. And uh, Dr. David Quigg of Doctors Data is a big proponent of liposomal versus the other forms as well. Um, so, but you're right, glutathione is also very important for detoxification. And so if we are accumulating uh, various compounds in our, our body, then that's going to interfere with our mitochondria's function and ATP production and, uh, you know, other enzymatic functions as well. Arsenic is a, is a big one that requires glutathione to be eliminated along with methylation to eliminate that. Um, and arsenic has a big interference with our mitochondrial function too, which then translates to the eye and arsenic's everywhere. It's in our air, it's in our food, it's our water, it's in our soils. Um, it's all over the place. And when I did an arsenic uh, challenge years ago, uh, that was the highest, uh, you know, I was nearly in the, in the red, red. I was definitely past the yellow. And uh, I used to do landscape design and construction. And so I, there's a lot of arsenic in the treated lumber that I was exposed to. And uh, so I've since been consuming glutathione like crazy. In fact, I just took some this, uh, this afternoon, about an hour ago. Because um, I was exposed to various chemicals at a hotel from it being new and jet fuels from the plane. So, and there's genetics associated with glutathione. There's G GST uh, deletions and polymorphisms. And there's also uh, glutathione peroxidase uh, issues in those genes too, which can predispose us. And also, which, which pushes demand on glutathione, makes it used up even more, is there's a gene called SOD. And if your SOD gene is working really quickly, that's making up, uh, that's transferring, or it's changing superoxide into hydrogen peroxide, which is putting a lot of burden on your glutathione gene. So SOD is, a, is another gene that's very directly related to it. Wow, lots of great information there, um, all within the context of looking at energy production and regulation through glutathione in the eye. Um, I took some notes here and I just wanted to do a quick recap. One thing that I had learned some time ago from an ophthalmologist who's actually within our functional medicine space, um, Shalesh, I'm not sure if you know Shalesh Kaushal, but, but he talks about how leaky retina is, you know, you were saying that the eye is so sensitive, it has some of the most densely packed uh, mitochondria and similarly can be exposed to the most damage. And so it's one of the places in the body where we get the first sign of anything leaky or issues with membranes or oxidative stress. And it's just interesting to me that we don't really have cl good clinical metrics. It's not like people go to their ophthalmologist when they think that they have leaky gut. You know, it's not like we're, we're connecting the dots within the medical sphere and saying, hey, let's look at your eyes because it'll tell us something about your nutrient status. It'll tell us something about your, the fats in your body because of the concentration of fatty acids. It's not telling us, you, you know, we're just not gathering all the information that I feel like we could be and connecting the dots just like you did even with SNPs and glutathione. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, one other thing I wanted to toss into the mix, and this I learned from Jeff Bland years ago, was how do we tell whether or not our glutathione stores in our body are depleted? And one of the ways is looking at an enzyme, a liver function test, by the name of GGT. 
just wondering your thoughts on that GGT and um, want to toss into the mix another thing too about toxicity and vision loss and even um, if we look at the pathway of what glutathione is required for we know that it's required for estrogen metabolism so I don't know you're really good at connecting the dots so those things that I just mentioned looking at leaky eye leaky retina uh, thinking about connecting the dots within medicine how do we get more information sooner by looking at these visual changes and can we make any connection to hormones with the eye based on everything that we know about glutathione? Wow, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. And, um, you know, hormones and me, I, I'm, that's an area that I, I need to hit and I want to make pathways on that. You know, uh, not, to, not to be funny here, but I'm a very visual learner. Um, I, I am not an auditory learner. I love staring at things. I have to read and I have to draw diagrams. Uh, and that's how I learn best. In fact, my nickname at Bastyr <clears throat> was named Skipper uh, because I would skip a lot of classes if it wasn't a hands-on learning because I knew I had to read the book. I knew I had ah. to stare at diagrams. Mm. Uh, sitting in class was a waste of time for me. Um, you know, if they're just sitting there talking back and forth, uh, it, it just made me frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I just had to excuse myself and I knew my, my strengths. Um, so GGT, in fact, I'm looking at a pathway, which I drew on a poster, which is two feet by three feet. And I have all these diagrams and pathways and genes on here. It's a real nerdy piece of art. Um, but I have glutathione on here and it's, um, when glutathione is exported from the cell and gets broken down, uh, GGT can, uh, be upregulated and then you get this, uh, you know, it shows you that there is inflammation in the body and reactive oxygen species because as I show on my diagram here too, GGT is an enzyme which uh, is designed to break up glutathione into different uh, building blocks so it can be recycled and, and, and uh, made again. But the problem is uh, it's stimulated by reactive oxygen species, which is the very thing that we need glutathione to neutralize, right? So mm -hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. So if, and GGT is very cheap and uh, it's an order on a test and most labs don't do it by default. You have to request it as far as I believe. Um, but I would highly recommend that you do order GGT because if you see an elevated GGT, you definitely know that there's uh, high levels of reactive oxygen species and your glutathione is, is in high need. Uh, along with uh, NERF2 and superoxide dismutase. Um, and uh, you need to find out why the reactive oxygen species are high. Uh, usually you will see uh, elevated GGT and, and you know, alcoholics, um, but you also, you know, people who drink alcohol in general, um, but it also could be environmental exposures. It could be uh, infections. It could be uh, celiac disease. That's on, you know, there's no real symptoms of celiac, but... Uh, they will have elevated liver enzymes, and that happened to Dr. Tom O'Brien's grandmother. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, she had liver enzymes elevated her whole life, and uh, she died of, of liver cancer because the doctor missed it. Um, so that, it's horrible. So elevated GGT, yes. Uh, lipid peroxidation is another one uh, that you can look at. Uh, lipid peroxides is a, is a great test. What is it? 8-hydroxy-D-guanosine, the DNA 
uh, damage mm-hmm. marker is another mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Um, it's cheap. It's urine test. You could look at RBC fatty acids, uh, red blood cell fatty acids. If you're, you know, high omega six, low omega three, uh, that's a problem. If your homocysteine is high, uh, you're definitely gonna have a problem because nobody talks about homocysteine elation. Uh, homocysteine is the process in which homocysteine will bind to things and wreck them. And uh, homocysteine will bind to glutathione and wreck it. And um, so that's a problem. So elevated homocysteine, if you see in a lab, then your glutathione is getting hurt. Um, then you need to look at your riboflavin and your selenium levels because you need selenium to use glutathione. And then you need riboflavin to recycle it. Um, so that's if you're low in either of those, you're not going to be able to use glutathione. So these, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of things that you can use for labs. But it's also just simple testing, you know, lifestyle stuff. If, you, if you're walking down the street and you find yourself super sensitive to smells, you know, that could be uh, glutathione, but it could also be other nutrients, you know, you know glycine or, um, you know, uh, TMG or, or cytochrome P450 is working too fast and your phase two working too slow. Um, so, but uh, GPL talks, a Great Plains Laboratory, a toxicant panel can be useful too. Um, and then you, you talked about hormones. Um, you know, stress will reduce blood flow. So we've got reduced blood flow from stress, but stress will also create a bunch of neurotransmitters which will. Uh, increase in the brain, such as serotonin, uh, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And when you process serotonin through a gene called MAO-A, it kicks off a bunch of hydrogen peroxide. So if you if you ever known someone who gets really stressed out, and I mean really stressed out, say death in the family or bankrupt or you know something really badly badly happened to them, which caused them tremendous distress, their hair turns gray or white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you get that much stress, you're, you're producing a bunch of hydrogen peroxide in your brain and uh, your glutathione just gets taxed. It's just done. Um, so you, they're, you know they're out of glutathione. Um, and uh, then with estrogen, you know, you need blood flow to your eye like we talked about. And estrogen stimulates a gene called uh, NOS3. And NOS3's job is to make nitric oxide. And we know about nitroglycerin, and nitroglycerin is given to patients whose nitric oxide isn't being produced in order to vasodilate and increase blood flow. And uh, so if your estrogen levels are too low, then your NOS3 gene won't be working very well, and you'll get reduced blood flow to the eye. And that's really the only uh, hormonal component that I know of um, because I haven't studied them well enough. Yeah, no, wow, you you did a beautiful uh, connecting of the dots. <laughs> you covered a lot of ground there. Thank you. Um, lots of things to go on here as people are listening. You know, one final thing I want to ask you about, and this is more of a lifestyle thing and not a nutrition thing, because I know that you do straddle both very nicely. And I'm kind of curious about your take on this anyway, because they seem to be a big hit. But what about blue light. You know, when I did a lot of my uh, research into all the different colors, what I was coming up against in the literature was all of these different colored light studies, 
like looking at illumination and how does that impact things like heart rate variability, uh, heart rate. A lot of these were primarily heart related, but then they were also mood and brain related, like looking at concentration. So I'm kind of curious because there's this big thing about blue light glasses and filtering blue light. You know, even on my computer, I have something called Flux where at a certain time in the evening, my computer just shifts from blue light to red light so that I'm not having abnormal melatonin uh, production. But, you know, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what about our eyes? Is that better for us long term? Is it bad for us uh, to be looking at all this blue enriched white light all the time? I don't know if you have any take on that just even for yourself and any kind of precautions that you might take or do you feel like it's all kind of gobbledygook? Oh, no, I, I think there's there's tremendous evidence uh, and I think there's a, a heap of research on it, too. You know, I know there's some health professionals that are really, really into it and they, they wear blue light blocking glasses all day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's a, uh, it does look kind of cool. Um, but, uh, you know, it's that's that to me is I don't want to say it's excessive. It's just that's not me. Um, so but I, I do think there there is something to it. You know, I. I do. I have seen the the evidence of, of blue light and melatonin. I have read that research, um, but I haven't read the research on HRV or heart rate variability. Um, uh, Alessandro Ferretti may have. He's really big into blue light and HRV. Um, and uh, but it's something. It's an area that I really want to dive into more. Um, and I have the flux on my computer as well. And uh, I'm sitting here staring at a as a blue light right now. Um, and, uh, I also learned that blue light impacts you more if you're not getting out in the sunlight. So, mm. uh, I learned this from Alessandro Ferretti, where if you are out in the sun, outside in the actual sunlight and you are bathed in sun for at least, I, I forget the duration, so I'm not even going to say it, but if you're out in the sun more than you are experiencing blue light on a screen which who is these days right <laughs> then the blue light doesn't really uh affect you that much because mm -hmm. your eyes are absorbing and soaking up whatever the sun is producing for you and it helps offset the blue light so if you are a uh, a night shift worker working on a computer and you never go out in the sun blue light's going to really really affect you Whereas if you do landscape construction or you work outside and then you come home and you watch TV and then you go to bed, you know, that blue light from the TV is probably not going to affect you as much as the person who's a night shift worker. So right. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and that makes uh, such great sense in light of the literature on increased metabolic syndrome and cancer risk for people that are working night shift. And typically there are other behaviors that go along with that as well. So sometimes it's hard to discern in the literature what's really causing what, but I think it's just the lifestyle and well, what is cultivated. Yeah, and then you have just the day shift workers. I mean, I'm not a night shift worker, but I, I sit in front of a screen all day and, you know, some days I'm, I'm on my laptop for, you know, eight, ten hours a day and I, I don't even see the light of day. I never even go outside until it's dark. And so I had no sun exposure. So I bet you my melatonin that day was just garbage and it probably affected my sleep. Mm-hmm. 
And plus, like me, you live in the Pacific Northwest, and so we don't have a lot of sun. Even if we were to work at a window, like I do, you know, we're just not connected into the sun. So it's almost like, you know, there are things that we can bring inside the home to create, um, you know, just better light. The studies that I've seen have shown that incandescent bulbs and using even candles, like I have a candle on my desk that I use when I'm working. I don't know why, but it just seems to create a sense of focus for me. And I have it right next to my laptop. So it's within my line of vision. Um, Not saying that that's going to do anything medicinal. For me, it just feels like it's a soft glow. It's something like if I need to focus, I can move my eyes away from the computer. And I know that also on smartphones, they do have regulating colors on the screen too. I'm just trying to think of, you know, what people can have at their fingertips to help them along, even if they don't have the sun, like we don't a lot of the time. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the, you know, the, I have the iPhone seven, I think. And I had an app that worked better than this one. In fact, I don't like the iPhone 7's control of the evening. There used to be have uh, in the iPhone 6, or maybe it's just a new iPhone update, where you could slide up and you can put it on nighttime mode, and that would work. Um, but I am not seeing it. Yeah, I don't know which, uh, I ha- I think I have, um, I don't know, a six or seven, but uh, I noticed that I can slide my brightness, um, so I, I just do it that way, where yeah. I just make it less bright, like the whole day, I, I don't even keep it so enriched, um, but I know That's that somewhere there's true. a setting to make it a little bit more red. Um, I'll have but... to ask my boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're probably in the know. Ben, this has been great. You know, it's a totally different topic maybe for both of us to get into eyes and vision. Um, However, the beautiful part about it is that being that everything in the body is a web and very systems oriented, there's so many of these similar concepts that can be applied across these different systems, like from the gut or from the liver to the eye. So it just really makes uh, good sense. You've shared with us a lot of um, just... uh, a lot of great things that we can do just even practically and different genes that we need to be thinking about. So I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about your book and uh, what's on the horizon for you with the Dirty Genes Summit and give the listeners a little bit of a, um, a heads up on that since um, they'll be listening to this before you launch them both. Yeah, will do. And uh, before I do that, um, I did find if you go to display and brightness, I was paying attention, by the way. Um, so you go display and brightness in your settings and then mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a night shift right there and my settings were off. Ah, it's it. I had, there's a custom schedule from 10 PM to 7 AM. Yeah. And so I, I dis, I deselected that. I just said sunset to sunrise cause it knows where I live and it knows right. that there's no sun here. So it's probably just going to be a night shift mode all the time here in Seattle. And then you can slide <laughs> if it's less warm or more warm. So uh, yeah, I should That's automatically. Great. Yeah, so there you go. So yeah, everybody, you know, look at your iPhone, turn off the uh, the Wi-Fi when you go to bed too, and um, yes. if you can't, just download FLUX. It's F period L U X. It's free. You can have it on your computer, and I kind of like it because it'll even give you a notification saying 
you're waking up in nine hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I've been at the computer way too long. Time that's to right. sign off now. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. Usually. Yeah. Until instead of you got five hours till awake, I'm like, oops. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, so uh Dirty Jeans is a is a book that is a culmination of all my trainings, all my experiences, all my conferences and all my learnings from other practitioners, my patients who who gave me insights and uh, folks on the Internet would, you know, comment on Facebook or my YouTube videos. And so it's just a culmination of all the knowledge that I have in an organized fashion so you can identify how your genes are working, at least the big seven, the super seven, I call them. And then if they're not working quite right, you take a simple little quiz. And then since you've learned how these genes work and how they get dirty, then you know how to clean them up. I mean, how can you fix anything if you don't know how it works? Mm -hmm. You can't. So mm -hmm. the whole point of Dirty Genes, the first half of the book is to teach you how genes work and then specifically seven of them. And I picked these seven for a few reasons. One, they're very, very well researched. Two, I've got a lot of experience with them. And three, uh, you don't need testing or genetic testing to figure out if they're dirty or not. You can use symptomatic, uh, you, you know, quizzes that uh, show you if they're dirty or not. So you can just simply, you know, take a quiz, which is built into the book, to see if your genes are not functioning quite as right, quite as well as you want them to. And then I teach you on how to clean them up through basic lifestyle stuff. But I tell you why down to the genetic level. And then you retake the quiz to see how you're doing. And then you start cleaning them up more specifically towards the end. And uh, it's, it was a fun way to, to do it. And frankly, I didn't think it was possible. Um, but with a, a great team that I had, you know, my writer and my, my agent and my publishers, they really helped me structure the book in a way that uh, is practical to the, to the reader and took all that comprehensive hard science uh, and made it, you know, applicable to real life. So that that's the book, and uh, I'm I'm excited that it's because it's it's going to bring how we should be using genetics in practice versus how most of it's done today. Which is here's a SNP that you have, it's bad and scary, and here's a vitamin that or a drug that you need to take for the rest of your life so you don't die from it. Mm -hmm. That's that's not that's not right, and it's it's just not empowering at all. Yeah, that's what I noticed about your book. It is very empowering in the way of um, being balanced with just very simple things that people can do. And there's so much mixed information out there. So it's great to have something like this in the hands of people to help them make sense of what could be going on. And then what about the summit? Then you've got a follow-up summit for people to learn more and go deeper. Yeah, so you know you can only fit so much in the pages that the publisher allocates to you, which is a good thing because uh, the book would have been too heavy to pick up, and uh, so you know it's 360 pages or so. But I I brought on other experts because I tell you you know in the book that you already know about sleep and exercise and and lifestyle and, and all these things, but I I you know I shared a lot of great tips in the book on how to support these. But I also wanted to expand that knowledge for you by bringing on experts who have written books themselves on just these things, on just diet, on just the elimination diet, or just mindset, or just sleep, or just ways to 
uh, support your adrenals or ways to heal your gut uh, to get you more insights and more information so you could really leverage and really identifying uh, how life, your life choices impact your gene function. And uh, so that's what we've done. So there's been over 30 uh, you know, people that I've interviewed and they are experts in their area and the insights are, are phenomenal. And we, I had the fortune to interview uh, multiple people that the, the interviews were phenomenal, such as yours, Deanna, about the impact of color on health. I mean, I had no idea the significance of that. Uh, you enlightened me tremendously. And then there's Patrick McEwen on breathing. I knew mm. breathing was important, but uh, he really laid it down. Um, and uh, my hands were sweating hot after uh, that interview because I was so focused on my breathing that I increased blood flow to my hands. Right now, my hands are cold. Um, because mm. focusing on my breath properly. And when I was talking with Patrick, I was really focused on it. My hands were literally on there. Wow. It was cool. And I just did a webinar, um, a four hour webinar with uh, a group in Japan. And I, I wanted them to experience genetics real time. So I told them, how are your hands feeling right now? If, if they're cold, you know, we're going to do a breathing exercise and why I teach you about NOS 3, you know, by the end of it, your hands should be warm. And so I, I had, I did what Patrick McEwen taught me and I asked him, okay, after 20 minutes of talking in this one particular gene, I said, and I kept reminding them about, you know, the proper breathing technique. And I said, okay, how many of your hands are warm now? And half the auditorium raised their hand. I could see it from my Skype and uh, it was really cool. And they, they got to experience genes firsthand which was neat um so you learn things like that uh in the summit and it's it's available january 22nd to the 29th uh it's totally free and uh it's got some great bonuses on there too of course nice and, uh, you know I, i'm excited for it i'm really excited me for too it. i am too really and truly there are a lot of great things happening in january so um Ben, thank you so much. I mean, I, I'm really excited for the launch of your book and, a, and for this summit to come out. And I think that this is the information that people have been waiting for for so long. I mean, people have so many questions about genes, what to do with their own genes. And so I think you're helping them along. And I really want to applaud you for your efforts. It's been great. So... Thank you. This has been a robust conversation, uh, definitely longer than I normally go, and that's okay because I just feel like this was chock full, and it's really nice to be very organic and creative and go in a lot of different directions. So thank you so much. And let's just mention your website too, drbenlynch.com and seekinghealth.com. That is correct. Were there any – okay, good. Excellent. Well, thank you, Deanna. It was fun, as usual. Thank you. Thank you.